tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. everyone, and thank you once again for joining us for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. And I say once again because I can only assume that you wouldn't be starting a show near the middle of its run or even near the end of the second wave of books. But I'm not here to judge. What I am here to do is to talk about our penultimate book in the second wave of Tangent Comics, the Ron Mars, Dusty Abel, Dexter Vine work known as Power Girl. Yes, in the Tangent Universe, the Chinese are in a power struggle against the West in the terms of paranormals, and the way they plan on balancing the scales is by creating a genetically altered life form with powers to match any of the United States heroes. But we're not treated to a superhuman... But not only are we treated to a superhuman version of Ming-Na Wen... Mmm, Ming-Na Wen. Sorry, I got distracted. But we also get a subplot with the members of the Metal Men from the first wave of the Tangent Books. So double your comics pleasure, all for one low price. And here to join me, Sean Engel, in covering this very unique Tangent tale is my partner in crime, Mr. Michael Bradley. Hey there. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's going great. I'm glad that we're getting to cover this. This is going to be an interesting one because this was probably one of the books that when I initially saw the ad for it was one of the things that went, oh, this probably isn't for me. And getting to read the book and getting to take a look at it and now knowing that it has essentially a sort of backdoor tale of the uh, metal men going mm-hmm. through it, it it's definitely changed my mind about it so again i have to thank you for uh, getting me into this yeah, you're welcome and it, it was i remember you talking about it on an episode of just one of the guys and making a comment that it was possibly some sort of you know manga comic and you weren't really interested in it, and I sent you an email saying, it's not manga, here's the deal, it's a alternate reality, blah, 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 you know, all that, and next thing you know, we're podcasting about it. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing the way these things worked out, and I think that it's really worked out for the best. I, like I've said many times before in the show, I am incredibly excited to be covering this, and I'm, I'm glad this has turned my... Uh, my thought process around on this because yeah like i said like you said initially when i first saw this i was like oh this probably isn't for me and now reading it i'm having to say that i was incorrect in that assumption yep i'm glad i could change your mind on it or that i could be a part of changing your mind on it because the books really i think speak for themselves but anyway but but before we get into coverage of the book do we want to go ahead and read some email i think so 
Okay. Let's start out with an email from Gene Hendricks. He's uh, the person who does the Hammer Strikes podcast over at Two True Freaks, as well as the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and uh, what else? Uh, Legends of the Superheroes. And like I said, all those can be uh, checked out at twotruefreaks.com. He writes in with the subject Joker's Wild and says, Sean and Michael. I don't know whether to be glad that they went mystery of the Batwoman with the Joker's identity or not. I'm kind of partial to the idea of her having multiple identities a la Moonlight, as we discussed the last time we saw the character, rather than having the Joker's identity shared by three women. But it's a perfectly valid way to do it. I do like the fun in the issue, which is refreshing, but there's also a good amount of drama and action to keep everyone interested. This, again, is a series that I would have liked to have to see an ongoing for. Are these women sisters, or are they, as in the mystery of the Batwoman, simply leaked by something? The two of them brought in after the fact, or sorry, were two of them brought in after the fact, or did they remnant and steal their way into the roles set up by the real Joker? Inquiring minds want to know. Gene, who suddenly feels 14 years younger. You know, I'm going to have to cop to this. I have not seen the Mystery of the Batwoman uh, DC animated movie. So I'm assuming in the movie there's something about multiple characters playing the Batwoman. I, that- s- I saw it once, and it's been probably maybe close to a decade since I saw it. But as, as I recall... This uh, new hero called the Batwoman appears in Gotham City, and then over the course of the story, it's revealed that instead of just one person behind the mask, it's actually multiple women that are also introduced over the course of the story. Okay. But, like I said, it's been maybe close to a decade since I've seen it, so if that's incorrect, then forgive me. But, you know, I I don't know. I'm kind of with Gene. I, I don't really... I'm kind of torn on it. I mean, I, I don't think it was a necessary uh, reveal that there were multiple women as the Joker, but at the same time, it doesn't really bug me so much that I would, you know, discount the entire book for because it was just an, a really fun read. So, yeah, that's kind of my thought as well. I was, I was surprised at the end that there were three Jokers. I think they made it work. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't. It didn't ruin the initial story for me. It was just an interesting twist. Was it necessarily, or was it necessary? I don't specifically think it was. But again, it didn't detract from the original right. story, and it didn't change anything in a major way that made you say, "Well, why are they doing this?" So it it, it worked for what the story was. Definitely. Mm. Uh, but next up is an e- a website comment about episode. 10, which was the Batman uh, issue, if I can get my words out, uh, and that was the first book in the second wave of books. So uh, this is a comment from Sphinx Magoo, and he writes, Greetings, gentlemen. With the holidays over, I finally had a chance to catch up on these tangent podcasts. A few thoughts on this episode. Number one, regarding the underwhelmment you felt with this issue, I wonder if a different artist may have helped. With Klaus Janssen's strong association with the DCU Batman and the Dark Knight Batman, it may have been tough to not think of Bruce Wayne and the then-recent Azrael storyline. Certainly, the sketch page above shows a nice design sense that might have been helped with someone different on art chores to help further differentiate the tangent Batman from the one we're more familiar with. I don't know, what do you think? Do you think a different artist might have helped? Hmm, I don't know... 
because we had it was Dan Jurgens on pencils. It was, it was with, Jurgens inked by Kla- Klaus Jansen. Right. Right. Uh, I don't know. I I think the idea that they were going by was getting sort of the design element of the Azrael Batman character while also bringing in the sort of mythological aspect of the Arthurian knights. It, with the design of the, uh, to use the term Asbats costume, it was very heavily armored, so it works together. Uh, I don't know. I, I didn't dislike it, so uh, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence here. I'm not really, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> there there might have been other artists that could have evoked that kind of Arthurian feel a little more. But outside of somebody like maybe Brian Ballin, I'm I'm really struggling to come up with any names. So, yeah, and know. you know, Ballin would have been great for this, but uh, then it wouldn't have been released till like oh 2014. <laughs> we would still be waiting on it. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, <laughs> it'd be magnificent to look at, but yeah, it would have been released like last week. <laughs> Uh, but Sphinx comment continues. Number two, I remember liking the story and character design much more than I did the Just Imagine Stan Lee's Batman book. Even though that issue was drawn by Joe Kubert, the ugly character design did nothing for me and popped me right out of the story. At least the Tangent Batman had an intriguing design. In fact, now that I think about it, I might have preferred Joe Kubert on the Tangent Batman story. Hmm. And that actually wouldn't have been a terrible choice either. Maybe have Kubert do the art instead of Jurgens, allow Jurgens to focus more on the story, and Jurgens or uh, Kubert and Jansen work together on the character. That might have yeah. been interesting. Yeah, or just, just Kubert, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, once again, I haven't read any of the Just Imagine with the Stan Lee stuff. Uh, should I look up the Batman from that? To, to read or just to see the character? Well, design? just to see the character design. Is yeah. the character design? I mean, it's more. Batman, like DCU Batman meets Man Bat, basically. Oh, okay. Of it. I, I think Sphinx was right. He might have had a better, it might have been a little better if it were Kubert designing this, but not to take any way, anything away from Dan Jurgens. Right. Uh, but Sphinx continues with number three. Even though this is an alternate depiction of Batman, it seems to be, it seems to herald alternative futures for Bruce Wayne. Sir William's confinement confinement and use of a surrogate to do his work is awfully reminiscent of Bruce Wayne in Batman Beyond and in Kingdom Come. In Kingdom Come, Wayne uses robot drones to patrol Gotham City, much like it's been rumored that Ben Affleck will be doing in the upcoming Batman v Superman movie. You know, did we mention that in I guess we didn't mention that in the episode, but it, no, it I, is I, very reminiscent of especially Kingdom Come, I think. Mhm. Although in the Batman, the Sir William book, you know, he he can't leave the castle because he's cursed, which is a little different than Bruce Wayne, who just you know can't go out and he's just too old to do it. But mm-hmm. but still, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a thing. Now it's been a while since I've read, and I, I remember Kingdom Come, and I need to. It's it's about time that I pull that out and read that again. But uh, I'm more familiar with Batman Beyond. I like the parallel that it's Batman working from the sidelines while you know the Terry Terry Long goes out there and faces crime Terry as Terry McGinnis. Yeah, well, I'm thinking Green Lantern now. So. <laughs> uh, which would be awkward having the uh, the 14 uh, year old homosexual kid going out and fighting crime. That wouldn't be good. Um, but yeah. 
Yeah, I, that, that's that's a good catch there. I also didn't know that the idea of Batman using armored robot drones was going to be part of the Batman v Superman movie. That that's something I haven't heard. I guess that's a rumor. I don't. I haven't been keeping up with the rumors. I'm just kind of waiting on the official stuff as it comes. Same out, so. here. Probably and probably by the time this comes out, then we might have our first trailer because I've heard that they're supposed to be dropping one in one of the major movies like Divergent or something coming oh, up pretty they? soon. That's what I've heard. Again, rumors. So yeah. take that for what you will. Uh, but to conclude Sphinx's comment, he has a fourth uh, comment here, and he says, The lobster red appearance of the Batman's armor seems like a funny choice. I wonder if it was influenced by the other Batman, Dracula, from the Francis Ford Coppola film. In that movie... Dracula wears reddish armor to battle the Turks in the pre-vampiric scenes. And I've never seen that movie, so have, have you seen I've, it? I've seen it. It's been a long time ago, and yes, in in the scenes, now that he mentions that, his armor is very reminiscent of the... Uh, oh, who was it? Who played it? It was... Uh, the guy who plays Dr. Smith. You know, he uh, He plays Commissioner Gordon from... Uh, the Dark Knight movies. Gary Oldman played Dracula in that. And I think he had a very similar look to uh, the Batman character in these books. You know, oh, it was that sort of reddish yeah. arm. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that that might... I can't remember when that movie came out, but it might be around the same time. So, the, you know, that uh, Jurgens and uh, Jansen were taking... Uh, design elements from that and moving into this that that doesn't sound unusual and it's it's a good design so there you go looks like that came out in 92 so it was you know definitely 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 could have been in their minds Uh, but sphinx concludes thanks for another fine episode i am looking forward to listening to the superman episode keep up the great work keep up the good work sorry well thank you very much sphinx for the the very in-depth email very much yeah it's it's always great to get emails where we can get conversation out of it. So thank you very much, Sphinx, for writing in. We've got another email. Uh, this one this time comes out once again from Gene Hendricks, and it's about the trials of the Flash. Uh, he writes in saying, Michael and Sean, you know, since the first Flash comic left such a bad taste in my mouth, I was really prepared to dislike this one. However, it sounds like this is a more light adventure and less of a screwball comedy. Maybe, like you two, there's been more comic styles in between the first issue and this one to show some contrast, but it sounds like I might actually enjoy this one. Color me shocked. Oh, it still has its screwball comedy moments, such as when her super genius, let me try that again, is super genius, (laughs) Wiley Coyote, father is trying to apprehend her, but it sounds like this would get on my nerves less than the first version. He says, thanks again for a great show. I think that says a lot as of this writing. Still... I'm sorry, it says, I think that it says a lot that I, as of this writing, have still not read any of these books or even paid attention to them before you guys started talking about them. But I'm so interested now that I don't want your podcast series to come to an end. Well done. Well, thank you, Gene. Unfortunately, that's one of those things with these books that aren't ongoings. Eventually, there's going to be an end time to them. Sadly, it will happen, but uh, we're going to try and cover as much of the Tangent Universe that's currently out there as possible. Um, I agree with Gene. This The second Flash book was less slapstick than the first one, and it had a good story. I think the inclusion 
of a secret six element to it definitely helped. And we've seen that a lot through the, uh, through the rest of the tangent line that we've had books specifically about one character, but also had elements of the other uh, titles throughout the books, like the doom patrol coming in with nightwing and all that. That's, that's definitely helped make the universe a bit more cohesive in mm-hmm. the individual books. Yeah, it, it was, uh, the second flash issue was just really helped by, like Gene said, dialing back on the screwball slapsticky stuff and the the farce basically. Yes. And, and focusing more on the kind of the fun adventure of the Flash and the her Secret Six teammates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I think you hit it on the head. That's that's what it was. It didn't feel like they were just trying to shoehorn comedy in. The comedy came from these characters being light and airy and fun. Right. Uh, but thank you very much, Gene, for your email. Uh, we've got one more comment that we're gonna one more piece of feedback for this episode, and this is from Matthew Cody again on the the Batman episode, which is the same one that Sphinx was talking about. And Matthew writes, "Parallel podcasters." Towards the end of the episode, Sean mentioned the tangent comic books could be tracked down pretty easily, but he didn't know that they could be found in the quarter bin. I just wanted to brag that I found Batman and other Tangent books in the comic book clearance section at Half Price Books for a quarter a pop. Nice. Oh, Matthew, you don't want to say that too loud because you'll have Professor Allen knocking on your door. Oh, that's all we need, Professor Allen cutting in on our (laughs) comics. Uh, The only downside is that they have a price tag sticker stuck directly on the cover. Yeah, I've bought some books from the the quarter bin at Half Price, and that that does kind of bug me as I like I mean I buy the books to read not to collect and resell but I, I it does kind of bug me that I can't get that price tag off but mm-hmm. but anyway uh, Matthew continues I just left most of the stickers on because I will have a pleasant reminder that I got a great buy but I did peel off the sticker if I felt the art was affected for instance the sticker stuck on Black Orchid's <laughs> Black Orchid's cleavage on the <laughs> Nightwing <laughs> <laughs> on the Nightwing Night Force cover had to go. <laughs> yes, definitely. Any Anything covering up her cleavage is definitely a diminishment of the artwork. I can't... <laughs> wow. And all the places they could have put the, put the sticker on that particular cover. Yeah. Well, maybe they had some puritanical people. Oh, boobs. Can't have those. <laughs> uh, all that blank space, and that is where they put it. Well, that's just what I said. And that is where they put it. I was able to get most of the first two waves as well as all of the Superman's Reign issues at half price books, although most of them were half off the cover price, not a quarter. Well, still, that's, you know. That's not bad. At yeah. dollar ninety-five or essentially two bucks, getting them at a dollar an issue, that's a good price. Yeah. Uh, I ordered a Green Lantern, The Flash, Superman, and Power Girl from Midtown Comics. I passed on the tangent phenomenon when it hit initially probably because it took place outside of the regular DC continuity. When I heard your podcast promo, I thought it would be a great show with you two at the helm. I wanted to read the comic first, then listen to the corresponding show. I picked up the books because of parallel lines, and I have not been disappointed so far. I love the show, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. That was a great uh, comment. Yeah, I'm glad that... Like I said, when we do these shows, it's not necessarily to make the listeners go out and try and pick up these books. If they go out and pick up these books or if they've had a nostalgia for them, that's that's great. Mm-hmm. If we're getting people to look at them 
uh, for the first time. That's wonderful. But it's not really the aspect that we're looking for. We're just wanting to talk about these books because they mean something to us. And I'm glad that you're getting some enjoyment about this. I'm glad that you've found so far that none of the books have disappointed you. And that's essentially the way I feel as well. All of these books, even in even in the ones that have been lesser, have always been entertaining. Mm-hmm. And while we're we we spent a little time this episode and last episode talking about where to find the books. We, it would probably be good to mention again that all of the first and second waves, as well as the Superman's Reign books that we're going to be covering in future episodes, have been collected in trades. So you know if you can't find the original issues, just hit up the trade shelves and you might find them that way too. Mm-hmm. So, are we ready to move on to the book itself? Yep, I'm ready to go. All right, well, this episode, we are talking about Power Girl, number one, which has a cover date of September 1998, and like the other books in the second wave, was released July 29th of that year. It's got a cover price of $1.95, or $2.75 for our Canadian friends, and 32 pages. And credits are Ron Mars, writer, Dusty Abel pencils, Dexter Vines inks, James Sinclair colors, Chris Eliopoulos Letters, special thanks for Joseph Illage, Eddie Braganza Editor, and Tangent Based on Concepts by Dan Jurgens. And the story is titled Power Struggle. In Washington, D.C., footage of the Supergirl, a Chinese government-created artificial life form with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men, is viewed by President Sam Schwartz in a room full of advisors. They watch as the Supergirl decimates a volley of Chinese troops before suddenly breaking down on a cellular level. They're then briefed by the President's Chief of Staff, John Holliday, that the Chinese have revamped the program and are nearly finished creating the next generation of Superhuman. Codename, Power Girl. Knowing such a Superhuman could radically shift the balance of global power, President Schwartz informs his advisors of a plan to steal the communist weapon. The U.S. plans to send a delegation to a human rights conference in China with Schwartz and his fellow metal man, John Hawkman Holiday, Ray Lobo Quinones, and Martina, a.k.a. Raven, as part of the delegation. Intel provided by the Chinese resistance will allow them to slip away from the mission with body doubles taking their place in the delegation. Once alone, the four discuss the plan, with Quinones making it clear to Schwartz that his participation doesn't mean the past is forgiven, and Schwartz acknowledging that the past always does come back to haunt the present. Two weeks later, with their doubles taking part in the conference, Hawkman, Lobo, and Raven sneak through the Chinese underground in search of their contact, but instead are met by a group of Chinese soldiers. A firefight erupts with the metal men getting pinned down, but the Chinese troops soon meet their end, courtesy of a pair of mystical dragons from Meridian agent Jade. Jade reveals that she was their contact and leads the metal men to the inner sanctum containing Power Girl's gestation chamber. As Lobo prepares to liberate the weapon, they're confronted by their former metal men teammates and now Nightwing operatives Francis Black Lightning Powell and Carl Gravedigger Walters, along with a half half dozen Nightwing heavy troopers who are out to claim Power Girl for Nightwing. The tense standoff is quickly shattered by Powell, who fires a shot hitting Quinones. As as a fierce gun battle ensues, 
neither side escapes unscathed. And neither notice that Power Girl's gestation chamber is slowly opening. While each side licks their wounds, and Holiday t- tends to Kinone's mortal wound, Power Girl emerges from her chamber, laying hands on Kinone's and bringing him back to life. Realizing her power, both Raven and Gravedigger try to convince Power Girl to come with them. But as more Chinese troops approach, Power Girl unleashes a blinding flash, dispatching the troops, and flies off, thanking them for freeing her, but saying she wishes to be no one's pawn, and she must find out who she is alone. The former teammates have a tense goodbye, and the issue ends with a memo from Holiday to President Schwartz, briefing him on what happened and the mystery of what role Power Girl will play in the future. This was the book when you originally approached me about doing the show that I was the most worried about. Mm-hmm. Like I said, when I saw the promos for the comics, Power Girl made me think that the entire line was going to be very anime, very manga style, kind of a vertigo type book. And at the time, I didn't think that was for me. And even the first time that I read through the book, I kind of had that same feel, probably because of that initial prejudice, especially with Dusty Bell's art style. But after rereading it and dropping away some of the initial negative thoughts about the book, I really enjoyed the end product. Uh, I think it's mostly due to Ron Mars' script, which not only tells a story about Power Girl, who really isn't all that much of a character in the book. Basically, this is another Metal Man story. Yeah. Um, it, the it, art. Oh, go ahead. Very, uh, sorry, it was a, it was a very much a sequel to the Metal Man issue. Yes, yeah. and it, it's. You know, I kind of want to say it's kind of, if you want to put it in idea of modern day movie making terms, it's kind of like The Expendables or or maybe Red, if you've seen any, either of those movies. It's older characters who've had military past or spy past or this sort of secret ops type past coming back for one last mission. So I enjoyed that aspect of the book. The art is still somewhat of a sticking point. But specifically knowing that Dusty Abel was attempting to go specifically for, for an anime or manga type style, you know, makes me realize that was what they were doing aesthetically for the book. So I'm not down on it. Mm-hmm. It just works. It, it works for what's going on with the book. And it may not be my favorite art of the book, but it doesn't detract from it. So there you go. Like you, I really like the idea of you know the the getting the band back together in regards to the metal man, and I I kind of wish we would have gotten more of that, or, or more, uh, gotten more into the background and emotion of that. Um, but I think it's a it's a it's a good issue. It has a solid ending, but it's also similar to the Superman issue in that there is room for more if they choose to tell that. And you know, regarding exactly what this new extremely powerful character means for the universe um i I can't really blame you for uh thinking this was more of a a manga or anime type of story because when you look at the cover that doesn't really give you 
an idea of what the book, or, or you know, it, it it's misleading, I guess, about what the content of the book is. Mm-hmm. And I don't, yeah. I don't say that to be critical of the book, but you know, it 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 very much does focus on the Metal Man characters, and like you said, Power Girl really just doesn't show up until the end. So. Yeah, this is one of those books that if you were to judge it by your cover, you would be doing it a disservice because it is a good story. It really doesn't deal with Power Girl all that much. But looking at this cover, you're thinking, oh, well, I'm, I just picked up some manga about Naruto's sister who's got uh, a tracksuit with a bunch of arrows on it. So. Yeah. But uh, do you want to go ahead, uh, if you don't have any more notes, do you want to go ahead and take a little break and then we'll come back after that and start discussion of the book? Yes. Okay. We will be back here in just a minute. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Rocks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Back to talk about Power Girl. Uh, starting with the cover. 
Yeah, this like like we kind of mentioned prior to this, uh, this is one of those covers that is going to either make someone interested or make someone disinterested. It it unfortunately has nothing to do really with the book other than just saying Power Girls in it. Um, gotta catch them all, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, the character design is very you know, 90s girl power meets manga, and, and that's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I, I, for what it is, I, I like it, mm-hmm. I guess. I'm kind of wondering if specifically the uh, symbology on her right-hand side, on her, on her chest on right side, I've got to assume that actually means something. I don't know what those Chinese symbols mean because obviously I don't read whatever the uh, Mandarin text or whatever... Uh, language that is right but it's consistent throughout the rest of the book so you've got to assume that that's supposed to be saying something there yeah i i assume it says something i i found it interesting that this is a chinese government created super weapon and she has um the the mandarin or chinese whatever it is there on her uh i guess it'd be her right yeah breast area and then on the left side, she has English, where it says Power Girl. On her left hip, she has what looks to be Uber, which would be German. And then she's got something on her right hip that I can't really make out from the cover. I'm looking through the book now to see if, if it's legible anywhere else. Probably not. Yeah. I, all, all these various well, languages, you know, which, which struck me as kind of weird. Yeah, because I, I don't see it on the on the last page oh it's uh, if you look at her reveal it says i think it says something maybe vault uh on page 18 okay as she's uh, coming out of the matrix birthing chamber oh and the, on the big splash yeah oh there you go so something olt maybe it's jolt maybe she's uh, advertising jolt cola <laughs> just delicious delicious high caffeine cola but yeah it's it's an interesting design if you aren't manga or anime influenced or don't have a liking to that, I can see why this might not catch your eye or might turn you off. But unfortunately, this is one of those things where the cover does a disservice to the story within. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of disappointing. Um, Moving on into the book, page two. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this image here of Supergirl, the original Chinese version of her, flying through the air this looks very reminiscent of something this looks like an image from a superman comic because i i distinctly remember something about this superman flying in this sort of position with his leg up and uh maybe not necessarily doing the flexing thing but flying behind a plane now that you say that i do seem to recall maybe it was I think it was by maybe not Jerry Ordway but someone in that era yeah it, it's it's very reminiscent of you know maybe the maybe sort of from crisis, or? yeah from the crisis something very reminiscent of the from crisis to crisis era yeah. and it, it it looks it's an interesting design element I'm not saying it's a necessarily a swipe but they're obviously influenced by the image of Superman and, and I I just something jars my memory and i only think of this because i recently did a just one of the guys episode where the cover by jim lee 
was very much an homage to an X-Men cover that he did a while back as well. So, um, But yeah, I, I mean... Go ahead. In, in the Superman one, he, he definitely wasn't doing the Welcome to the Gun Show pose, but <laughs> you know, he was just soaring you know, with his arm out or something. But I feel like I can picture it in my head, but not see it, you know? Yeah, I, I do also like the fact that not only the Supergirl, but the Power Girl characters also have this sort of chalky white skin, which would also lead you to bleed or, or, or kind of uh, visually connect you that these characters are genetically genetically altered versions of a superhero character right very much like a bizarro type character so i like the i like the coloring on them making them look sort of bizarro-esque yeah and the way she breaks down on on page three is reminiscent too of some stories where um the clone has been created and then it, it breaks down into the bizarro so mm-hmm. kind of like that reference too and and while we're talking about um kind of references uh, it's interesting and I didn't really notice this until just a minute ago when you you said something about um, like golden age and, and Superman but this six panel grid they used here on page three is kind of reminiscent of the style of golden age books where it was very you know grid like and they didn't have the extravagant page layouts like they do from silver age forward mm-hmm. and I don't know if that was intentional at all but Regardless, it's it's a good design element to sort of try it tie it back to the origins of Superman, mm-hmm. since essentially this is the Chinese version of an origin of a superheroic character that is somewhat analogous to Superman. Yeah, and the way they describe her powers, you know, she's uh, fending off bullets and she's leaping, and it's it's a very Golden Age Superman type of of power structure. Exactly. They specifically reference that she can, she doesn't have flight, but she does right. have incredible leaping skills. So it definitely ties her back to the Golden Age Superman. Mm-hmm. I don't have a note until page five. Do you have anything? Um, well, just, just to mention for people who might have forgotten, this Supergirl was given a passing mention at the end of the Metal Men issue uh, way back in episode two. Um, at the end of that issue, we meet the present-day Martina, and she had just returned from Beijing and says something about them trotting out the Supergirl for like show-and-tell. And from the back matter in this issue, it seems like that, that was just meant as a throwaway line, but then they were looking for another idea for this wave, and Mars suggested they, that they expand on that Supergirl idea. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice way of you know tying these two stories together and then tying the Metal Men story into mm-hmm. this. So that's good. What did you have for page five? Uh, on page five, I again, it's just because Abel's art is is so radically different from what Mike McCone did in the first uh, Metal Man book. And maybe it's the anime influences that uh, President Schwartz looks a little off on this panel. However, I do like the the side panels, little individual short panels that shows the president lighting up a cigarette. And yes. just this, that's just a really – cinematic way of telling us and this is in if this were to be filmed this would be a little quiet moment where you see the president pull out a pack of cigarettes you know tap one out put it up to his lips light it and then do it deliver the dramatic line at the end we're going to steal her mm-hmm. it's it's a very like i said cinematic is the one thing that i would say that defines these panels here and it's a really good job by vines yeah 
And we pointed out in the Metalman issue... Or by a bell. Yeah. Sorry. We we pointed out in the Metalman issue that when Schwartz started talking about the more dubious parts of the flashback, he started smoking. So I thought it was interesting that here, again, when he starts talking about performing some, you know, less than savory deeds, he, he lights up. It was just a nice callback and continued bit of character. Yes. Um... I don't have anything until page seven. What do you have? Okay. Well, this is kind of about six and seven. Just not a lot to say here, but I, I do want to comment that um, for what is essentially several pages of nothing but text-heavy talking heads, you know, th- this opening sequence here was never boring for me. No, same here. It, like I hinted to in our initial discussion of this, this is very much uh, an expendables or red type idea. It's mm-hmm. them getting the group back together for one last mission. These are all special ops people who are trained. It's just they're much older, but they're still going to be able to accomplish this thing because they have such training and such experience. So I like the idea of it. Um, my note on page seven is on panel two. You know, a bell. I don't know what he was going for, but that definitely looks more like a Reagan type look. It does. I mean, it looks, his facial features look like a Reagan from the time that he was in the president's office. Except for the blonde hair, that is kind of a swipe. And and the fact that he's standing there with the American flag in the background, it just looks very Reagan esque. So take that for what you will. Uh,. Page eight. Um, it's too bad that we don't or or didn't learn more about what happened to Ray. Mm-hmm. The, the metalman issue said he was paralyzed in a car accident, but you know he's clearly on the outs with all of his former metalman comrades. So I kind of wonder what the history was there, or if they had something in mind, or if it was just you know. Well, and uh, the fact that uh, Mars was the one who wrote the initial Metal Man issue, and he's come in to do this one as well, is nice that he's trying to tie in those things. Right. We really didn't get an idea of what you know. We saw at the end of the Metal Man issue that there was a lot of fallout from the firefight, and there was obviously you know problems between Marcus Moore and President Schwartz or Sam Schwartz at the time. So. It, it, again, it's one of those things where it would be interesting if we could find out more about these characters and more about what caused all these rifts between them. Mm-hmm. So, um, Page 9. Okay, so flashback again to Episode 2. I questioned then what the different history of the Tangent Universe meant for the Nixon presidency, You know, mm-hmm. if, there, if there ever was one at all. Turns out Nixon was president and was killed about 25 years ago during a visit to China. Yep. So that's essentially what happened to Nixon in the Tangent Universe. And it could be one of those things that maybe there was an assassination attempt that they did so well that it wasn't really seen as an assassination attempt. It was a quote-unquote tragic death, and they have it they have it bolded here. So you kind of get the idea that maybe it wasn't just natural causes. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I like the I like the seating of that as well in the story. So yeah, can you imagine what that would do to like? Well, if if, 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 if a sitting president was killed during a visit to another country, mm-hmm. that that's that's basically would have that that would have started a, a whole new war, yeah. and maybe because this happened while the war in Czechoslovakia was going on. 
I'm assuming that's probably around the same timeline or maybe when that war was ending down mm-hmm. that it might have been overlooked a little bit more. But it's one of those things where – and obviously by this time the Atom had been around and you had Captain Comet around as well. So the American superheroes were building up. Maybe China was kind of worried about – officially trying to start a war with America since we had that kind of power on our side, which led to the escalation of them trying to develop superhumans themselves. Yeah. Again, it's it's more seeding for interesting ideas for the books that unfortunately we're not going to get. Yeah. Uh, pages 10 to 12, I, I really like the callback here, going through the tunnels, looking for a contact. You know, they get they get ambushed as a close quarters fight, and they're saved by their contact, who turns out to be a beautiful and mysterious woman. Uh, th- they point out the similarities, but I, I really like the callback. Yeah, I, I I didn't really come into I didn't really that didn't really click for me. But yeah, that's exactly what happened in the middleman issue. Um, there's a firefight. They meet this uh, mysterious woman they don't know anything about. Uh, I also like the fact that they have. The sort of aliens esque uh, text pieces over the uh, caption boxes to where everyone's talking, so you know who's talking and yeah. what. That's a, that's a nice little design element for the, uh, I guess, for the letterer doing that. So that's cool. Um, page twelve. So Jade was working with Gravedigger in Nightwing Night Force, but now she's working with the president's people. This character is all over the map. I mean, it's it's really she's uh, she's double crossing and triple crossing everyone. It it makes her a really interesting character that we've seen we've seen her pop up like two or three times throughout the the second run of the book. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see what's going on. I'd be really interested to see what's going on with this character and see it expanded a lot more over this, but there's so many twists and turns with her, you've got to wonder exactly what's going on. Well, she works for Meridian, who works at, and apparently with the Chinese government as well, or, or working against the Chinese government, sorry. But then she was working with Nightwing because those guys thought they were working against Nightwing, even though they're working with Nightwing. Yeah. The, it's confusing. It is confusing, but it's. I'm certain if we sat and thought about it, you know, we could make sense of it. But it, it is one of those things where it's all these double dealing or all this double dealing and all this sort of covert action that really makes the story a lot more interesting. Yeah. And can I point out, just for the humor of it, you know, putting this in a real world context, you've got the first lady and the chief of staff on a special ops mission in China in the midst of a gun battle against members of the Chinese military. Yeah, just think about Michelle Obama in a firefight. <laughs> I couldn't see Michelle Obama, and oh, I'm trying to remember who the chief of staff would be. Um, the, the guy who does all the I don't know, but Michelle Obama in a firefight, yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty wild. Dennis McDonough. Okay, there you go. I, th- I think I think it's best if we stay clear of you know commenting about Michelle Obama and firefights, lest we uh, have NSA agents uh, showing up at our door. Well, they are listening in, so yes, that's that's why you that's, don't. That's say why sp- we don't have to worry about backups for our recordings because they've got them. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, page thirteen. Uh, it seems really weird to me that this chamber wouldn't have like an entire flank of guards on constant duty, and I'm willing yeah. to overlook it. Because maybe the resistance 
made sure the guards were gone or whatever, but it it just seems odd. Yeah, and there you know you've got this big scientific chamber, and there's not one person in here manning any of the computers down right. on that down on that bottom page. It looks like the the bottom left hand corner. It looks like there's a big computer monitoring station. No one's in there. So yeah, that is kind of odd for their big scientific super weapon to be completely unguarded. Um, my next note is on page 14, that third panel there. I like the idea of the decrypto key. I just thought that was an amazing thing. <laughs> Making yeah. reference to, uh, obviously, if you're going to do a super girl or a power girl thing, you're going to have crypto yeah. somewhere yeah. put in there. And obviously, they couldn't use a de-beppo key, which was would have been just silly. Beppo. I like Beppo. <laughs> uh, but jumping back to page 13, just real briefly, there's a line on this page that kind of skeeved me out. Um, at the bottom of the page, Jade is talking about Power Girl, and she says, the, the gene-geneers, which isn't a word, but just go with it. The gene engineers found female specimens were easier to produce. No coincidence that female specimens can also be bred. And that's just kind of creepy. Yeah, well, it's it also plays into the idea that the Chinese, you got in the initial part in the book that the Chinese government tested the super or the supergirl character against their own troops. Yeah. The Chinese aren't the in, in this book the Chinese aren't the ones who are they're they're willing to allow certain concessions to happen in order to have their end product met. They don't mind about killing off their people. In fact, I think one of the one of the president's advisors says that the Chinese have over one billion people, one billion citizens. They're not too worried about letting things like this go on. So, right. yeah, it, it just puts to mind that the Chinese are willing to forego willing to forego uh, necessary measures or politeness to allow the end product to come out. Yeah. So. Uh, but moving on to page 15, you know, you were talking about earlier uh, President Schwartz looking differently. Gravedigger looks considerably different here. Oh, yeah. He's in the, in the Nightwing Night Force books and then the Nightwing book. He is a very... He's a very muscular man. He's very broad-shouldered. He's very imposing. Mm-hmm. Like a linebacker, this, basically. Yeah, he looks big. This one, he looks very thin. It's a very different look. Um, Powell, in his little floaty X-Men hover chair, looks fine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Gravedigger looks completely different. He's very Professor X in that top panel. Mm-hmm. Very much so, well, especially with his hands sort of yeah. in front of him and the, yeah. the sort of finger thing. Uh, but we also have another character moment here that I liked with Powell pulling the pistol and shooting. Uh, we've seen him be very quick to fire a gun before, you know, most recently in Trials of the Flash. So the consistency of that portrayal was really great to see. Yep. Um, I don't have anything on the next two pages. That's just a bunch of big fighty fight. Uh, the reveal of Power Girl on page 18. Mm-hmm. It's... It's a nice reveal. I guess we commented earlier on her uniform and the sort of unusual design elements on it. But for what it is, it's a nice piece of art. Yes. I, I like the reveal of Power Girl 
and how it's done over like a series of three pages as the firefight is going on because you've got mm-hmm. all this action happening and then the smoke is filling the room and in the back you see the gestation chamber slowly opening which culminates in this full page splash that you're talking about and it's I, I like the throwback to the war you know with the fighting which is very symbolic of death and then juxtaposing that with what is essentially the birth of this super powerful being yeah good catch yeah i that's uh, that's a nice parallel that they've got going through here you've got the people dying people murdering everyone and then you've got this super powered being who's supposed to be doing the same thing being birthed at the same time so it's a nice parallel with mm-hmm. that um after that i don't have any notes until the end do you have any throughout the rest of the book um no, I, I guess you could raise a question about how scientists could create an artificial being that could restore life, but comics. Yeah, I think that's the explanation we need to go with. Yeah. Um, m- m- my only note, I like that the ending of the book is sort of written up as a uh, presidential notification or a sort of final uh, typed up memo to the president. I am concerned now that we have two all-powerful female heroes who essentially just want to think about things and can basically restructure <laughs> the universe or life whenever they do think yeah. about it. I mean, I'm not saying Power Girl and Wonder Woman are parallels, but they both are vastly powerful. And I think they even mention at the end, uh, we don't know whether or not these people would doom us all. So I think that's an interesting parallel that we've got these two immensely powerful female characters in this universe that just want to be left alone to think about things. Right. Plus you've got the older humanite, which is another, you know, mm-hmm. uber powerful being. And But yeah, this one was a book that definitely changed my perception. My perception changed about it when I finally got a chance to read it. And I'm glad that I did because it's not necessarily a power girl book. In fact, power girl is essentially an ancillary character in the book it's a nice metal bend story and having ron mars come in and write it was uh was really a treat mm-hmm. yeah and i we both liked the metal man issue and it was so it was nice to revisit that that world or that uh, that concept i guess is a better way to put it yeah but uh do you have anything else you want to talk about on this one i'm good i think Okay, well, I guess we're going to go ahead and call this uh, end. Uh, we've got another book coming up. Like I said, this was the penultimate issue of the second wave of the Tangent Universe. And next time out, we're going to be jumping into the JLA. And it might not be the JLA you're thinking of, or in the end, it might be the JLA you're thinking of. You'll just have to find out when we cover it here in a couple of weeks. But until then, thanks everyone for downloading and listening. Keep those cards and letters coming in. We'll read them on the next episode. And until next time, we'll catch you on another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Bye, everyone. See ya.
You've just finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Hosted by me, Michael Bradley. And me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places. Most notably, Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It also can be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review. Maybe even a five-star one. Every review helps more people find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about the books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Send us an email at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your comments on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. And Sean hosts a number of podcasts, including Just One of the Guys, Walking Dead Wednesday, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, Listen to the Prophets, and Who True Freaks. And all of these shows can be found over at twotruefreaks.com. Speaking of Two True Freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the Amazon link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe, you only know the names. Magnificent to look at, but yeah, it would have been released like last week. (laughs) Uh, But Sphinx comment continues. Number two, I remember liking the story and character design much more than I did the Just Imagine Stan Lee's Batman book. Even though that issue was drawn by Joe Kubert, the ugly character design did nothing for me and popped me right out of the story. At least the Tangent Batman had an intriguing design. In fact, now that I think about it, I might have preferred Joe Kubert on the Tangent Batman story. Hmm. And that actually wouldn't have been a terrible choice either. Maybe have Kubert do the art instead of Jurgens, allow Jurgens to focus more on the story, and Jurgens or uh, Kubert and Jansen work together on the character. That might have yeah. been interesting. Yeah, or just Kubert, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Now, once again, I haven't read any of the Just Imagine with the Stan Lee stuff. Uh, should I look up the Batman from that? To, to read or just to see the character Well, design? just to see the character design. Is yeah, the character design? I mean, it's, it's, it's more Batman, like DCU Batman meets Man Bat, basically. Oh, okay. Of it. Um, I'm Googling right now. Which the audience, I'm sure, is going to find scintillating. Well, there's, there's always truncates or not truncate silence, but there's always the editing. Yeah, I'll po- I'll post a link in the chat window there. Okay, just to get a look at it. But. Ah, it, 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 it's a <laughs> okay. It's a guy in a suit. So, okay, yeah, that that's not his head. No, but it looks uh-uh. more along the lines of man bat. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it, it, it's not bad. Now, I can see underneath. Yeah, that looks like his face. But yeah, that's that's a weird sort of 
Hawkman meets Batman meets man bat design. So, yeah, okay. It's not a bad piece of art. It's just a different character design. I don't know. I think I, I think Sphinx was right. He might have had a better – it might have been a little better if it were Kubert designing this. But mm, Ming-Na Wen. Enough said.